0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you
1: in living
2: color on
0: WTDI. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
1: Lying on your back in the garage.
0: You can't see a thing
1: except for the clear blue sky, a few cottonwood clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with songs.
3: quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it.
2: We care about your world. Put your ears to your mind and allow me to take you back on force in time. To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down
0: the line. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. It's been kind of a crazy day here. We're doing a pledge drive, and um, I just came out of another radio show with a room full of guests, and it was a bit of a madhouse, which is unusual for life up here.
1: Okay, so life in the fast lane up in Vermont.
0: Yes, which normally we don't have, or at least I don't normally have a life in the fast lane. And it made me think of something you wrote in the book about being on tour for your second book and the irony of rushing around.
1: (laughs) Right, that's a good link to the book, yeah.
0: And that you said about needing to slow down to let your soul catch up. Right. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. Okay. So anyway... William Powers is my guest today. He's an author and expert on sustainable development, and he's on the faculty of NYU. His latest book that we're going to be talking about is Dispatches from the Sweet Life One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World. This new book, Dispatches from the Sweet Life, is your third book in the Beyond the American Dream Trilogy. I would love for you to just briefly talk about the first two books in the trilogy.
1: Well, in the first one, 12 by 12, a one-room cabin off the grid and beyond the American Dream, I had returned from 10 years working abroad as an aid worker in West Africa and Latin America. And I was feeling depressed, (laughs) Um, partially because even though we had a lot of successes and local conservation efforts around the world and helping indigenous groups, the overall bigger picture was getting hammered away by biodiversity loss and climate change and the extinction of indigenous languages. Uh, That's when I went met this very inspiring physician who lived in a 12 by 12 house off grid, and she invited me to move into her place while she was gone. I spent the season in the 12 by 12 um, and just had kind of an awakening to the fact that we need a deeper probe and much deeper solutions to this kind of a crisis. So that was the first book in the trilogy. Um, after that, I moved back to New York City, where I'm from and where I was based after being abroad for those 10 years. And nothing was quite the same. You know, I met my wife there, um, and we ended up deciding to do a kind of another radical shift, which was getting rid of 80% of our possessions, and downsizing to a micro-apartment, which was 340 square feet. And that became the basis of the second book in the trilogy, which is called New Slow City. And New Slow City is a takeoff on kind of New York City, um, but New York at a slower pace. You know, with five-day weekends, I experimented with that, I experimented with you know, rooftop organic farming and beekeeping, um, also urban sanctuaries, finding those peaceful places in the city where you can really feel connected. So it's kind of like you might say the second book was sort of like how do you do 12 by 12 in a city? Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, a small living room, tiny kitchen, mm-hmm. um, really small bedroom that just fit the bed, and then there was a bathroom that you couldn't even close the bathroom door <laughs> when you were using it, and the bathtub was about three feet across so you had to adopt the yoga posture, uh, you know, shoulder stand to kind of get into the tub.
0: <laughs> okay, that, that gives me a great picture of the space. So what inspired you and Melissa, your wife, to move to Bolivia? And what did you hope to find there?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, everyone's different. and yeah, I'm, I'm not suggesting in this new book that you know, people should move to Bolivia. But for us, we hope to find more connection to nature, to free time, and to community. And we found all three of those things. You know, there's a national park, three times the size of Yosemite, out our back door, and, you know, with more biodiversity than all of Costa Rica. And there's a slow culture, people call themselves oseologos, there it means like leisureologists or doctors of leisure. You know, there's a sense that life is about sort of free time and enjoyment of family and activities and so forth and not necessarily working. You know, this whole idea of the job today, um, as David Graber writes about in his new book, you know, is a modern invention that really doesn't necessarily connect how people live for most of our developments of the species. So we actually found a lot more free time. Um, you know, and then community, we're in a transition town of people from 31 countries in a 5,000-person town where the Andes meets the Amazon in Bolivia. So that international segment is only about 3% of the population, but it's very dynamic, and so it does create kind of a really interesting mix of people who are like trying to slow down their lives, uh, live a little bit more in contact with nature, and also source things locally. If you believe it or not, we have 80% local production Of everything. And it's really kind of exciting.
0: Yeah, I can believe that because when I was a child, we lived in Spain for a year. And it was much the same way in this small town that we lived in. One of the main things that was brought in from the coast, which was actually only about 30 miles away, was seafood. And that was brought in every morning. And every morning we could go down to the market and purchase fresh fish and food. And and local wares.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So it's it's a local economy where people are engaged in the real business of life itself with each other.
1: It's true. The other day we were walking through town and a woman ran up to us and said, like, my hens are laying, my hens are laying, you know, come, come get the eggs, you know, because we'd gone there earlier and there weren't any, you know, so local eggs being produced. We produce a lot of things on our own land. So we have five and a half acres. We started selling our excess produce in the seven day a week farmer's market, like a five minute walk from our house. And yeah, all of this is about localization instead of globalization. So the main trend is urbanization and the fact that some two thirds of humanity are projected by the UN to live in cities by the year 2050. But there's a reverse trend called revillaging. So revillaging is the sixteen hundred transition towns in forty five countries around the world. And revillaging is people looking for lower cost of living, more walkability, more time with family, and deeper relationships with the community. So there's so many attractive things about it. Obviously we were making trade offs, you know, we both lived in New York, we had good jobs there and we're connected to social and career networks. So you have to kind of make a decision if you're going to revillage or do something like this to kind of, okay, we're going to detether from everything we're used to. But in our case, it just felt like the absolute right decision.
0: So in the title of the book is Dispatches from the Sweet Life. So what you're talking about is another vision of the sweet life. And coming from this country, you know we're brought up with this this almost unspoken but ubiquitous american dream and we're not even consciously aware of it to a large degree could you talk about this sweet life in relation to the american dream and and i i want to make it clear that there are some positive aspects to the the american dream and there are challenges to the sweet life that you're Mm -hmm. living. So I would love for you to talk about some of that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the American dream of sort of upward social mobility, you might say that's the positive part of it, uh, the fact that it's not some kind of a rigid case system. But really the way that it's morphed recently is the American dream is kind of a consumer dream or kind of an American nightmare of GDP growth. You know GDP. I think it's a generally disastrous plan <laughs> because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know if you raise GDP constantly, you're going against the Earth's biological limits, and we need to find another kind of a system um, globally. And you know the sweet life is not what you might be picturing. It's not a hedonistic every person for himself kind of a vision. It's actually la vida dulce in Spanish or vivir bien which also translates as living well together, and it means you know, humans finding happiness in contact with other people in community and with nature as part of yourself. So it has to do with Pachamama, which is Mother Earth. And the word Pacha, Latin, the root of that word means the unified field. So the whole idea is that humans are really not separated from the rest of the biophysical world. That's a, a myth, a kind of an anthropocentric myth that we've created in this kind of disembodied kind of Western rationalist idea. But when you step into this larger matrix, this more-than-human matrix, you might say, that's where the sweet life is. So there's lots of challenges in how that's being implemented.
0: Um, The book is a lot about your own personal experience of transitioning from your Western upbringing and learning to embrace and cope with what comes with the sweet life, what comes with living in a more natural environment and a very different natural environment than you were used to up here. Well, growing up in New York City, that's an understatement, of course.
1: (laughs) Right. So you're pointing out that the book is sort of like a real-life novel in the sense that it's about myself as the protagonist and our family and our community and how we're wrestling with all the challenges around the sweet life. So there's no sweet life singular, it's like sweet lives in some way that people are pursuing in different ways and it creates all kinds of tensions and problems, you know? So we had an ethnocentric backlash against foreigners living in our town uh, a few years back based upon just, I think, a little bit of resentment about, mm, I don't know if it's privilege in terms of how we think about it, but more like sort of local power structures being displaced by newcomers from europe from the rest of latin america but also from other parts of bolivia specifically cochabamba area and totora coming in the mayor the new mayor elected was not part of the local power structure he was from cochabamba some of the foreigners like australians have a nice bar on the plaza and there's other people that have tour agencies that kind of have a little bit more political power locally it's those kinds of conflicts that we also faced
0: and there was a political struggle that was occurring because Suraketa, the town that, that you were living in, was run by a well-established culture and not, not one that was favorable to, to the vision that you and some of your fellow transition towners were aspiring to.
1: Right. So these are some families who for generations had kind of ruled the town. And there were a lot of corruption networks built into this. And that was being challenged on the one hand by the transition town network. And I think we mentioned briefly but that's a, a global movement or you might say global, a combination of global and local that is working towards clean energy, sustainable agriculture and more community and local economy. So that's what the transition movement is. And our town became part of that in 2015 by joining the movement. And you also had the movement towards socialism, the MAS party. Some of you have heard of Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, just often known as Evo, who's from this indigenous socialist party. And like, so they actually won the local mayor election and the city council, majority of the seats. So, of course, that threw everything into a kind of a, a new era as well.
0: So, talk about. The relatively new Bolivian alternative of embracing the sweet life as a national agenda, and how the mass party fits into that, and what it means, and how it came about.
1: Well, you know, the sweet life idea comes out of the cosmology of the Andes and the Amazon of Bolivia. Um, different cultures—the twenty-six or thirty cultures, depending how you define it—that comprise the country. And at first, Morales was absolutely behind this agenda of trying to decolonize, as he called it, the country. They set up a ministry of decolonization. They had the rules for living well, or the rules for the sweet life. Um, They even put the rights of Mother Earth in the Constitution and had a law of Mother Earth as a macro law for the land that gave the Earth rights. However, in his second term, which started in the early 2010s, transnational interests, specifically Chinese companies, Russian natural gas firms, U.S. agricultural companies and mining companies and so forth, have put so much pressure on this small country of 10 million that a lot of these efforts have been weakened. And I would say there's also some internal party dynamics that the Mus party, like any political party, wants to maintain itself in power so because of that they've put electoral success in front of all these grand ideals of living in harmony with Pachamama and so forth but you have to also say that it's not just their own weaknesses and power hunger but it's like you know the global system is so strong and it's very easy to corrupt a small country with high ideals
0: And if you're just joining us, I'm talking with William Powers. He's an author and expert on sustainable development, and he's on the faculty of NYU. His latest book that we're talking about is Dispatches from the Sweet Life One Family, Five Acres, and a Community Quest to Reinvent the World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH. Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio.
1: You know, the global system is so strong, and it's very easy to corrupt a small country with high ideals.
0: Yeah. It's going on everywhere, unfortunately. So your town of Suriketa is a very hopeful model of how things can go, and in some ways it seems almost ridiculously hopeful compared to what's going on these days.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and in fact, that's also what attracts us to this vision and to that life. You know, I'm up here in the United States on a book tour and visiting family and friends and so forth, but, like, my heart is definitely back in our town and on our land and in our community, it's just such a rich and beautiful life that we really enjoy there. And it has to do with the fact that in some ways you've deep connected or detethered from the kind of system of command and control of people's minds, which we'll is talk about it very directly, like through the media and the media cycle and you know, peer socialization. Like the fact that all of our peers have been socialized into a certain way of looking at things. We're constantly being re socialized if we step out of that while you're in this country. But when you leave the cultural matrix, there's nobody controlling you. There's very little kind of media in our town, and it's more about like kind of, you know, rituals like, for example, welcoming the sun at solstice, you know, June 21st in the southern hemisphere. You know, everyone goes up to the Inca ruins and puts their palms up to receive the first light of sun. It's about the chayas and the gifts to Mother Earth for every single ceremony, whether it's a wedding or a birthday party or something like that. It's the gatherings that are constantly taking place and the fact that only 5% of people have cars. We're always walking everywhere. We have no car down there. And it's the, quite frankly, also the mingas, these communal work parties that we'll do to plant our orchard or whatever it is. So all of this kind of gives life like a real texture. And even if you're living more simply and so forth, there's there's more richness.
0: And... There's a lot of conscious attention being brought into all of your activities, those rituals that you wrote about and you were just talking about, the way we enter into each new thing that we initiate or that you were initi- like the building of a house mm-hmm. or a marriage, that it's a very conscious entrance into that new creation. That's
1: a great way of putting it, that... You know, minding the gaps or the changes or the transitions, you know, and that mindfulness is very present. And it's also about sort of child raising and the fact that our younger daughter, who's five years old now, has so closely grown up in this milieu. Like the other day, I saw her on the town plaza. Yeah, it's a pretty big town, 5,000 people, and just, oh, hi, Daddy. Like it's happened to my mentor, and she just thinks that's our backyard. She she doesn't really see a distinction between our house and the rest of the community. So of course, her daddy's going to be right there in a public space with her. Another thing is, she said to me the other day. She says, you know, and I think I may put this in the book. Um, it was more than a day or so <laughs> ago, but she said to me, you know, Daddy, um, when I die, um, I want to come back as a flower, and you'll be a petal in my flower, and my sister, mi hermanita, will be another petal and mommy will be a flower right next to us and it was just this beautiful image of like that's how we come back and then she thought about it for a second and she said no but in the end we don't decide Pachamama decides what we come back as so you know it's not that we're having this indoctrination into Pachamama and this whole other it's just that that's that's the life that she's kind of picking up and so she just feels this love for nature it's what biologist E.O. Wilson calls biophilia or this DNA-level connection we have with nature, it's a kind of a love for the world. And I think maybe that's the biggest thing that we're denying our kids today is that love of the Earth, um, the planet. You know, there's the book The Last Child in the Woods, Love's book, that talks about that rejection or that absence. And finally, there's the lack of initiation, quite frankly, where, you know, we're not getting... A sense that life is not just cultural and religious, but more importantly, it's psychological in a deep sense, and it's ecological in the connection to a territory.
0: Well, since you brought up initiation, talk about the initiation that you went through, mm-hmm. and why you did it, and how you did it, and who helped you to do it, and what the process of going into the initiation was. I know that you had inner trepidations about taking that step
1: mm-hmm. well in some ways it wasn't a big planned out thing it was a spontaneous kind of a exercise by a local person a local kind of you might say a shaman or local kind of awesome guy who has this off-grid place there and helps people kind of on the spiritual path you might say but it's a little bit less kind of up in the air than that. He's just kind of a philosophical guy. And, you know, he had me uh, on a certain day go and sort of shed some of my connection to kind of cultural and worldly matters in a sense and find that kind of a deeper connection to the earth and to others and so forth. And that was up at a waterfall. I talk about that in the book, that whole kind of experience, but, that kind of thing is super powerful. You know, to have an actual, like, okay, I'm going to go out in the forest, I'm going to do this. Now, I think it's much better if you do it as a young person, say, between ages 14 and 18 in that period, when you go out into the forest um, with elders, have a period alone, and have that kind of a connection. Because then that goes with you for all of your life. You know, the other day, Melissa said to me, my wife, she's like, it's funny we spend, like, the first 20 years of our lives becoming colonized, and then we have to spend the next 20 years decolonizing ourselves.
0: (laughs) Right, right. uh
1: Like, wouldn't it just make more sense not to get colonized in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're using these wonkish terms like colonized, but but basically it means programmed, programmed Mm -hmm. into, like, the kind of dream with a capital D, which I talk about in the book, which basically is this dream of, like, a reduced life, or a life where everything is kind of made up of... uh, Scientific kind of processes and so forth, without any magic or love or a bunch, you know, all these wonderful things um, get sucked out. And yeah, how do we reconnect? Is the big question. And we always say, like, you know, preguntando, like, walk, questioning. Each step you take is another inquiry, another step is a question.
0: And being open to to the magic that's occurring with each step that we're stepping into the magic. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was that Uh, wonderful thing, that news, very magical story that she was talking about when she dies, as opposed to the colonized versions that we are indoctrinated into up here.
1: Right, that's true. Like, to look at that story that she told is a magical story. That's a very big part of her worldview. She doesn't really watch TV, except sometimes at Friends House she'll see a little bit. She doesn't have any technology in her life very directly and so everything's her pets like her two turtles and her dog and her two cats and her friends and then like the orchard in our gardens were always harvesting food that we're eating or that we're walking it down to kind of sell it in town this food that she grew you know or that we're going to some kind of anyway it's just a completely different texture like it almost reminds me of like maybe how a childhood would have been a couple hundred years ago or something like that where you were in what psychologist Bill Plotkin calls the nest, like, those first five years, like, the nest, it's where you really, like, root into who you are what the world is. So to her, the world is a magical place.
0: And it's alive, whereas the world that most of us are indoctrinated into, as you said, the mystery and the magic is sucked out of it.
1: Uh-huh. And it's not necessarily something that we even think of. It's very small decisions. Like, for example, the other day, here in the U.S., because we have Clay back with us on this to her. you know, we were with some friends, and they were saying, "Oh no!" Like the little kids were saying, "There's no fairies. Fairies are just made up." And I was like, "Yes, there's fairies," and she came here, and like, daddy, there's fairies, right? I'm like, "Yes, sure." <laughs> you know, I mean, there's fairies. Like, you know, she lives in the forest. Like, there are, of course, these other spirits and, and beings and so forth. But the other kids that she was with, her, you know, they were being taught by their parents are very like rational, logical, typical Americans. Like, you know, that's just a fantasy or something like that, and you know, I believe that we should encourage all kinds of beliefs beyond what we know from a purely reductionist point of view. Mm-hmm.
0: I completely agree. And getting back to the shaman that you were talking about, Juan Carlos, there were a number of wonderful stories that you told about him and wonderful things that he said. And I would love for you to share more of that. And mm-hmm. And there's this wonderful line about there not being any division at all between spirituality and ecology, and that our sense of who we are and our own embodiment is in direct relationship to our environment and the world around us.
1: Exactly. That's a great point. And that's, I think, what Juan Carlos puts his real name, the point that he makes. You know, he feels it's just seamless. He also says that there's no competition, no evaluation, no judgment, no comparison. So all those are mental categories that we create. Most of it's part of the dream with a capital D. And so he has no, none of that in his life. If you have to ask him, Oh, how did this program go with this group that was just here oh, great. I mean no matter what happened, if there was nobody there it went great. And if there were hundred people there it was great. Whatever happened was great there's no evaluating or, it's so anti-western in a way but he's stepping out of completely out of this idea that you know whatever happens is great because it's what is you know it's a radical acceptance of la Pacha or this unified field and that whatever it is it's happening for a reason and the guy honestly lives his, what, his life this way he's got eight children his wife and his whole family is a friend of ours like I would love for him to be on your show he doesn't speak English um, but you know someone like that his voice definitely is not getting out there but you know, he told me that story once of, uh, like, the Yama herder. They're trying to lead a Yama caravan, caravan of these Andean camelids across the salt flats of Uyuni in Bolivia. And when they were tying them up one night, they were missing a rope. They only had rope for 19 of them. The, the 20th didn't have a rope to tie them up. They said, what should we do? Well, the herder said, well, just pretend to tie them up. Just pretend to tie them up, and he'll, you know. So they pretended to tie him up, and, okay, he didn't go anywhere. And the next morning when they were leaving, the 19... Yama's took off and there was one still tied up there, or one wouldn't leave. And he said, oh, well, that's, he's not even tied up. Like that's the one that we just pretended to have. He's like, oh, well, pretend to untie him. And then so the guys pretended to untie him and then he continued on. You know, but what's great about that story is like we're all kind of tied up with these invisible cords to something, you know? Uh And there's not really a cord there connecting us to the dream or to, you know, any of these limitations. And quite frankly, to the evaluation, comparison, judgment, and so on, that's a self-court. And if you just cut the cord, it's not even there, but you just cut it and then you're free.
0: Yes, I love that. And I'm so glad you told that story because that is such a, a key story in this whole story. Because Melissa was working on the water purity issue mm-hmm. in the town, ta- in Suraketa, and she was so caught up in that. And at one point, I'm not sure whether it was Juan Carlos or his wife, Carolina, who says that the water will be pure when you cut the cord. Mm-hmm. And there's another line that one of them says, the world will heal when we heal. That it's about what we do within ourselves that then ripples out into the world around us, not, not the other way around.
1: Right. Right. It's the timeless wisdom of, you know, what Gandhi said about being the change you wanna see or the Buddhist idea of present moment awareness and the observer presence. It's very similar in the Amazon and Andean cosmos, Cosmovision, where for example, they have this idea of the chachawarni which is the male woman kind of energy that isn't necessarily in a heterosexual couple, it can also be within a person, those two energies, but that kind of balance, it's one of the four aspects of the sweet life is that sense of balance, you know? And so the stories that you were just telling about Carolina and Juan Carlos, they always work as a couple, kind of as this Chachawatomi. Sometimes Western audiences will react negatively to that. They think it's an essentialist position about women being a certain way and men being a certain way. But it's very clear from everything that I've seen in Bolivia that they do believe that men and women are different and equal providing these different energies to situations. Like they don't even have odd numbers of anything. You can't just have three seats gathering into four. Even if there's not a fourth person there because you have to be even numbers. There has to be that balance in every situation. And they have this idea of el tercero incluido. That's the third included. And what that means is, for example, I might ask you, you know, what do you think about whatever phenomenon? And you wouldn't necessarily answer it, (laughs) or not directly, because it's neither one way or the other. It's both. Both is the answer, you know? And that is so anathema. I've realized even on this tour and so forth, like that idea of both, a lot of times, people are defending intellectual positions, even very like intelligent people. They're saying, this is the way it is, and they're defending that position. Or they're saying, this is my idea. But really, it's not that. It can be, it can be the opposite as well. And that's kind of hard to talk about, but I think, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes.
0: Yes, and it, and it relates to what you said earlier about walking the questions, being open to both. Because much of life is very paradoxical up here people like certainty of things being black and white one way or another, but life is rarely like that.
1: That's right. And the other thing is there's a deep time here. One indigenous person said there's no urgency here. Even though people wanted to frack on their land and there are big multinationals coming, there's no urgency. What that means is that, of course, it's something that you have to deal with, that there's this environmental crisis and so forth but as soon as you go into the urgency mindset you've left the wisdom behind because then it's about engaging in the Western idea of time as being a non-renewable resource but it's a renewable resource time like the seasons comes and it goes back it's like the same thing our lives are not really finite we're part of a bigger cycle we're tiny molecules in this big system and you know, we go back into the system and other lives come out of it and so forth. So it's one big connected whole where there's no urgency whatsoever. I mean, in Aymara calendar, we just celebrated the year 6,000-something. They pretty much, do you know how they come up with their calendar? They just took 1492, the year Columbus discovery, and they added 5,000 years to it, basically because they were here for 5,000 years for that. And, the, and their calendar goes, because it's arbitrary anyway, and the calendar goes non-arbitrarily, From, you know, solstice to solstice, that's the year, which makes much more sense than than the way we're doing it. So there's this other sense of, you know, deeper time, you know, time cycle instead of time's arrow, non-linear. So all of that is incredibly important, too.
0: It's like a, a kind of recognition that each moment renews itself. It's continually arising and therefore not to be overly concerned about any concerns that we're projecting into the future, such as these catastrophic issues of climate change or the town's water getting polluted by new development or anything in that way?
1: Those are important things. They're there. And you deal with them. But you don't create a whole urgency and huge problem and and another layer of negativity to the situation. It's kind of as you clear your inner space and then you face it in a very clear way without contaminating it further. It's bad enough that the water's contaminated. We don't have to contaminate ourselves at the same time. So it doesn't sound so clear to somebody who's not already in that spiritual point of view. And Even the word spiritual is kind of a strange word. Basically what spiritual means is biocentric or connected to the rest of nature. Connected to the sense that we're one of 30 million species on this planet and we're one of a hundred, you know, billion stars in this one galaxy. We're part of this we're a tiny, tiny, tiny thing.
0: And if you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Bill Powers. He's An author and expert on sustainable development. He's on the faculty of NYU, and his latest book that we're talking about is Dispatches from the Sweet Life One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio.
1: I like Anthony DeMello's thing. Do we come here as a shooting star or as a bud flowering from a tree? I mean, when I first heard that little call on, I thought, "Oh, well, I came as a shooting star." <laughs> the first, like kind of Western way of looking at it. You know, I came from somewhere else, but no, we came as a little bud, and a bud flowering from a tree is the most normal, ordinary thing in the world. We are completely normal and ordinary. We're not really special either. You know, there's nothing exceptional about you or me or anybody else of the 7 billion, going on 8 billion people on this planet were these little buds that are flowering everywhere and then we go back to Mother Earth at the end. And that's beautiful and that's enough.
0: Yes. I love that notion of allowing things to be enough. Not striving for more and that notion of not improving or stop trying to improve things.
1: Mm -hmm. Right? There's the Lowe's store model, which is never stop improving, which I (laughs) I love that one. Because we've kind of reversed that. We just crossed out the word never, my wife and I, and we just stop improving. And it's not to say that we stop doing things. Of course we do. We're always creating and doing new things and enjoying it. But we're not improving. We're not saying, oh, I'm not good enough. And now we need to do this to become complete. It's more like Buckminster Fuller's thing when you realize after not committing suicide that okay, now I'm just starting over again. Like, it's as if I've already died and now it's just all fun and creativity and it's the person that's fun and interesting and like you do one thing, if it works out, fantastic. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter anyway. You're going back to Pachamama in five minutes or 30 years. So you're just constantly creating and you're in that creative space and that's probably the best thing that I've learned in Bolivia and from Bolivians, is that they say down there, the luggage arranges itself in the journey. You throw the bags in the back of the truck or the car, and believe it or not, it's going to get organized. <laughs> Maybe not in the exact best way, but it's going it's to happen. So there's a sense of spontaneity, you know, that, that ties into it as well.
0: It's kind of like the way nature unfolds itself. And we being part of nature, that, that it, the same thing happens within our own lives.
1: I think so. I think that's right, because, yeah, nature doesn't have this grand five-year plan reduced to a PowerPoint deck of ten slides. It doesn't have that. It's unfolding every single minute as it's unfolding. You know, I think of it as it's just this beautiful creative force. that's very mysterious, but obviously it has a directionality to it and a kind of a, an order and a meaning, but it's not an imposed meaning certainly not by any species on the planet or by any, you know, anything that we're aware of. So like, you, you step into that, and then you just naturally find your way. But I just look at it, I just sometimes I'm really sad because I see people here especially, but also in Europe and in Latin America increasingly, and especially in the cities, so tuned in to the news cycle, and what's happening next, and what's the next crisis, and you know, that sense of like, oh gosh, the dread and the negativity being just fed to us. Instead of spending like an hour meditating every day, some time in the woods, you know, working a shorter work week, spending more time with your kids and their amazingness, climbing trees, doing things you love to do, and then thinking of yourself as like a creative force. You're part of that creative force. You're not separate from it, right? So whatever you're creating and doing is part of that. And I think of it as this. that's really what happiness is. It's, you know, one is going with the flow. That sense, if someone asks you, "Oh, what are you doing?" You wouldn't even really know because you were so into the moment, into the flow, that you wouldn't know. And the other is that there's some kind of like a service involved. Like somehow it's contributing to the whole. Um, you know, those those two things.
0: You mean that we're that everything we do, that our our general orientation towards life is is towards. the the collective evolution, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I I guess you could use those terms, but I'm a little hesitant because, you know, towards the collective evolution, then you get into like the guilt or the shoulds, or I should be contributing in this service way towards something. I, I think in some ways you're automatically contributing to that if you're in that flow state and if you're part of the whole. Change yourself, you become less narcissistically anthropocentric focused on the human version of things and your little psychology and your little ego so you kind of step out of that whole thing into this i would call it a very mysterious space where you don't even really exist as we think of it Mm -hmm. so the individual has become part of the environment right Mm -hmm. so when you're that space of course you're acting on behalf of the environment and the behalf of everything because that's what you are
0: exactly i love that you made that distinction and clarified that yes and I think it's so valuable, particularly for Westerners, to have an experience outside of our culture.
1: Right, definitely is. And I don't know if you saw the quote from the head of Slow Food USA, Richard McCarthy. Like he, maybe I'll just find it here in the in dispatches from the Sweet Life in this new book. Like he he made a really interesting point. Here's his quote about, it, about the book. He says, you know, Power's description of homesteading in Bolivia is self-effacing, funny, and strikes at the core of what we're missing today, a chance to get off the combine before we get pulverized by the system. And then he asks, do we need to travel far to learn what's deep inside of us all? The short answer is probably yes. He says, do we need to travel far to learn what's deep inside of us all? The short answer is probably yes. And that's interesting because it kind of goes a little bit against the conventional wisdom that wherever you are, you can find enlightenment, find happiness. But there's something so rich to stepping outside of it. And I think anyone listening who's had that experience of living for at least a couple of weeks or several months somewhere else, especially in a global South country, which is far from like the engines of colonization and control, you start to feel your rhythms slow down and become more connected to other things. And that's where you find this deeper sense of creativity that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Mm
0: -hmm. I totally agree, and I put such great value on my year in southern Spain, where I was completely immersed in a much slower, non-consumerist culture, where at the time, as far as I can remember, there was at most a handful of cars in a town of 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. And everyone walked, and of course there was the siesta from 1 to 3 o'clock, which everyone observed, and it was a way of recognizing and embracing something that's really hard to describe in this culture, that no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what you were dealing with in the morning, and no matter what you might be dealing with later in the day... You take those two hours, you have lunch, and then you take a nap, and you totally let go. It's like a form of meditation, but it's, it's totally integrated into the day-to-day way of life.
1: The siesta is under attack throughout the world by capitalist interests. In fact, even in Bolivia, they eliminated the siesta in public institutions in La Paz, However, it still remains very common among the majority of people. I take siestas there, 20 minutes or something, and you you just give thanks at the end of this nap in the middle of the day that you just feel so revived, and you're just having this another day. It's almost like having two days in one. And then the time with your family eating, everything closes in our town from 12 noon to 2.30. That's the time when you're taking a nap, having a long lunch with your family, renewing yourself, and then you're going back to work let's say, 12 to 2 at the very least, those two hours. And, you know, in compensation, maybe people do work Saturday mornings, like sort of 8 to 12. But I guess working like crazy for five days, sometimes 10, 11 hours a day, and then having this weekend when you're decompressing and probably in the West oftentimes spending Saturday doing errands, going out to shopping centers and so forth, it's almost better to spread that leisure time out through the week and then just work Saturday morning and then you're done.
0: Yeah, I would certainly say so. My lifestyle, I try to integrate the notion of vacations into the rest of my life so that I don't... The idea of a vacation is kind of a foreign notion for me. (laughs) I just live that way.
1: Yeah, I know. Exactly. It's the same thing for us. That whole concept seems strange, you know, because vacation assumes that you're working, say, you know, forty eight weeks a year or whatever it is. The average American only gets twelve days of vacation a year, and then forty percent of people don't even take the full twelve days of vacation time because of pressures to continue. And of course, we also have holidays and so forth. But yeah, you know, they've dubbed our country the, the no vacation nation. Huh. you heard that? No Because if you take all the industrialized countries, we have the least amount of vacation. And in fact, October 24th is take back your time day. That's the day that all Europeans could just stop working to the end of the year, and Americans have to keep working until the end because of so much less leisure. And it's kind of silly because labor productivity has almost gone up threefold since 1970. And have we used that extra productivity to give ourselves the benefit of free time? Not really. In fact, we're working longer hours than we were then.
0: And we're experiencing less happiness and yeah. less peace. And less fulfillment.
1: Yes. That's right. Less, less happiness. Um, the CDC recently published a report that suicide rates have been going up. You know, what is it called? Subjective well-being is either staying the same or going down despite all this GDP growth. So it kind of makes you question what's this really, this economy and the system for if it's not delivering either environmental benefits or personal happiness benefits. It makes you question the whole thing.
0: At least it should. (laughs) Yeah. There's another really fascinating thing that you went through down in Bolivia when you were trying to get your house built. And at one point, after thinking that you had established the plan for your house and, and made all the connections, you found that you couldn't actually get anything accomplished. And you then tell a story of Becoming a bee and, mm-hmm. and what you learned from that process and how to be in that culture, how to live in relationship to th- that new culture that that you were you were acclimating to at the time
1: mm-hmm. that's right yeah, just brief version of that story is you know I was back in the Amazon accompanying three village chiefs in getting title to their land as part of the project and these honeybees came into the vehicle after it got planted in a mud hole in the middle of the Amazon. And it started to fill up with bees. They were searching for salt, as I would find out. And basically, none of the chiefs could drive, only I could. So I had to get into the car, into the vehicle. I got stung a bunch of times, you know, and went running out yelling from this car. So one of the chiefs came over laughing and he just said, you know, you got to just be a bee basically, (laughs) to make this work. And if you don't go soon, you know, the alarm lights are on, the battery's going to die, and we're going to be stuck here in the middle of the Amazon for days. And more bees were coming. And literally, there were a thousand or more bees, thousands probably, just filling every crevice. I had to sit down gently on them. I told myself, you are a bee, you are a bee. And this time, I put the key in the ignition, turned it, no stings, even though they were going up my nostrils and on my eyebrows and in my ears. And the car started up, they shoved logs underneath it, and the vehicle got out of the hole. The chiefs climbed in. they were bees, too. Nobody got stung, and all the bees went out of the car as we drove forward. And so what I learned from that was not just being the bee as going with the flow, which is the superficial understanding, but it's like you were just saying, it also means give up the narcissistic, human version of things and step into the more than-human matrix of the beautiful, magical, biophysical world. And there you will find flow.
0: That's such a wonderful, wonderful story and a great model for this whole notion of transitioning from one insane dream to a dream or story of connection with everything, relationship.
1: Right, there's a saying that people are only people through other people. And the idea is that this interbeing and this interconnection is the center of life
0: is life itself,
1: yeah, that's Even. right that's life,, mm-hmm.
0: yeah,
1: right. Life is not my life. Oh, what am I going to do in these next six months? You know, my life, my goals um and if I don't meet my goals, I'm going to feel really bad about myself. I'm going to push myself harder. To- no, you are life, you're part of this interbeing, and if you humbly stepped into and with passion and enthusiasm, like just with your whole heart step into each step, it's going to be fine. (laughs) You can just like throw away your agenda.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's much easier said than done up in in this culture because this culture is all about our agendas.
1: (laughs) Right. I know. It's it's also being provocative. I don't think that most Bolivians, although there are a lot, that have torn away their agendas but, or never had them. But, you know, there's a certain amount of planning that has to be done, of course, mm-hmm. to kind of navigate things. But like, how do you minimize the amount of time that's spent in that analytical planning mode and you maximize the other part, which is the intuition, the just the interconnection.
0: And keeping things in a broader perspective.
1: Yeah, the deep time, you know, the no urgency perspective.
0: There are a lot of people in this area who are involved or aspire to this transition town notion. As somebody who's been living it and studying it and teaching it, what would you like to offer people as parting words?
1: Well, up in Vermont, in places like Johnson and Montpelier and Richmond, and I know a lot of those towns, and elsewhere in New England, you know, it's maybe a little bit easier to step into a transition model than it is in other parts of the country where it's pure suburbs, because you do have these vital smaller towns and communities and this tradition, this democratic tradition. And there's also a lot of nature and a lot of woods and protected areas. So I would just say, you know, in that bioregion, it's just a question of connecting to what's already there. There are so many wonderful forest schools for kids and farmer's markets and local musicians playing and local breweries. And just join that movement, which is about localization and connection and community. And then, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to those big box stores so much or be driving excessive amounts and so forth. You just kind of take that step into more localization on the one hand. And then the other equally important part of the story, I think, is find time for solitude. As you know, the corporations are mining our solitude just like they're mining other natural resources through the shortage of our attention span. So the more that you can step out of your social media, out of the media cycle and so forth, as being your constant companion into time with yourself, that also helps.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about... The sense of urgency that we have up here, particularly in terms of the political crisis that we tend to feel passionate about or or get very upset about, and also the impending issue of climate change and other such seemingly catastrophic issues
1: yeah, I mean, get involved, do something about it, do what you can, take a lead, even whatever it is that you feel inspired to do as part of that process but Don't make it into a personal crisis and a problem that's going to keep you up at night and keep you away from your truest creativity. Because when you find what really makes you come alive, that's going to be your gift. And I think that you're not going to find that if you're just constantly down in the dumps about these bigger things. And I really believe that the system, part of the system does want to keep us in that state of unhappiness because it keeps us kind of tethered to it and consuming more, you know, pharmaceuticals, more psychiatry hours, but even more stuff just in general to kind of like clutter our lives, to get away from this lack of connection with the earth and with others. So, you know what I mean? I'm giving like a different paradigm here. I'm not saying, you know, here's how you can get through the door more easily. I'm saying here's another door to go through, you know, so... It's not to say that you reject. It. I mean, obviously, we have to deal with all of these bigger political problems and issues and so forth. But one way of putting it, or I haven't put it very practically, how about this: spend twenty percent of your time on that, something like that. You know, a limited point where you're engaging with that, and you're doing all the things you can, and then eighty percent on the things that you're really passionate about, including having enough solitude and separation to find those passions.
0: Yeah, that reminds me back to Juan Carlos. And the notion of maintaining our own inner sense of peace, no matter what's going on around us, no matter what we have to face in the world.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And it seems almost imperative that we maintain that inner sense of peace, because whatever inner state we bring with us to anything we do is, is actually going to be what we'll be
1: creating. I think so. It's. It's a beautiful process. You can even think about it like in the bigger picture. Like If millions of people were doing that, instead of, say, worrying so much about the current political leaders and the current crises and so forth, and just getting so worked up and just constantly, you know, like that, imagine the change that would make, that kind of awakening and the way that that spreads to other people.
0: And if you're just joining us, I'm talking with William Powers. He's an author and expert on sustainable development, and he's on the faculty of NYU. His latest book that we're talking about is Dispatches from the Sweet Life, One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Uh,
1: Think about it like in the bigger picture, like, yes. If- millions of people were doing that instead of, say, worrying so much about the current political leaders and the current crises and so forth, and just getting so worked up and just imagine the change that would make, that kind of awakening and the way that that spreads to other people, that that awakens kind of consciousness, Mm
3: -hmm. where
1: you're kind of in this world but not of it in -hmm. the sense that you're in it, you're involved, but you're not of it. You're not like, I don't really think of myself, for example, necessarily as a citizen of a particular country. You know, maybe you could say, I think of myself as a global citizen, or you could say, I am a part of nature, or Gaia, Pachamama, that's my identity. Even, but even that identity I'm not so sure about. It's like, any identity we're putting in ourselves is also very limiting. Right. And unfortunately, like, the way that psychologists have it influ- influenced our education system, like, literally going back a hundred years, the philosophy is identity formation is the most important thing. Right? Between the ages of like fourteen and eighteen, that's when you're finding your like way to fit into the economy and make your mark and stand out and so forth. Whereas we could have a totally different model, maybe more of the sweet life model, which would be that period of 14, 18 is when you're connecting with your deeper psychology into nature and territory and losing your identity, losing your ego. So it'd be almost like an opposite way of doing that initiation what we have, which is you spending that time kind of like, you know, working on your SAT scores and competing to have the best things on your resume and then figuring out how am I going to, like, what am I going to do type of a thing.
0: Yes. And because we have no real intentional form of initiation in our Western culture or our Northern Western culture, we don't have something to counterbalance the deep-seated Colonization of our minds and and our relationship to everything, the way we think, the way we use language and and all of that
1: right great. great point.
0: so again, I want to touch on the initiation what what the role of initiation is and how we can use initiation, and those of us who are raising children, how we can bring that into their lives in a way that that could help with this whole transition notion?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, for example, in Richmond, Vermont, there's this wonderful forest school that has 80 kids in it every Friday. All the kids are in the forest through the winter. That's an initiation that goes on through their whole childhood into this connection. They're making forts out in the forest and harvesting edible plants and just connecting to whatever season it is. That type of thing. But, I also think you can create your own rituals, initiations. I don't think it has to be what meal. You know, also, like Bill Plotkin out at the IMS Institute in Colorado. They have specific initiation programs. And There's lots of programs, I think, like that that you can buy and that you can have your – send your kid through and so forth. But I just think that, you know, why not at your own local level get together with a few other families and kind of talk with them about how should we do this with our kids that are maybe going into sort of age 13, 14. What can we do? And then you think about it and read up the other types of initiations around the world and, you know, use one's imagination and come up with something kind of, like, really authentic. Like, my sister, her son, he's 14, he just lived for a week by himself out in the forest, surviving. And that was his initiation, in a sense, for him. But that's what he chose to do. He didn't take anything out there. He just, having gone through this forest school, was able to do it on his own. And I think it's powerful.
0: hmm And in many of the... The more indigenous cultures, they have these going off into the wilderness alone, often combined with some kind of a a scarification ritual. Mm -hmm. And you did that with yourself in the book. I'm really curious what you gained from that or what kind of impact that had on you.
1: I think there's a physical element to, yeah, just going through some physical pain in combination with this experience of going into the forest alone that hits the point home on a deeper level and just kind of marks the moment. Like to say, the word character comes from the word, you know, etched or deeply carved. So it's that kind of a concept.
0: And therefore the scar that it leaves is like a reminder of that rite of passage or that point that has marked your life in a certain way. hmm Many traditions scarify their faces so that people see that in each other and they recognize this is a, a human being who has been through this rite of passage. Exactly. I loved this book. I loved the story. I loved the journey you went on, and it all came together so beautifully at the end. What's next in your life? Or do you feel like you have found what you've been looking for?
1: Well, I feel like I've found um, what I've been looking for in a lot of ways, and we're very happy and integrated and thriving, I think, down in Bolivia. And so Next In Life is going back after this trip and you know, reintegrating into our lives there. and. It's nothing special. <laughs> uh-huh. it's, it's you know, it's it's that life that's just obvious, I think, to us now. Like, the way that you know, it's not that we're not walking questioning, we are of course all the time. But there's also like a deeper kind of like just a knowing that everything is fine.
0: So you've really found the sweet life?
1: I think so. I think that's right, that we we feel like we found it according to this definition of the sweet life being a sense of like personal happiness with community and nature at the center of it
0: and that's a really really beautiful thing I think that's what everybody ultimately is looking for if they can only find the space and the time to actually see it without all the madness that's continually distracting us in this northern way of life
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much for your time, and um, I wish you and your family all the best down there.
1: Thank you. This has been a very deep and engaging conversation. I appreciate it. And I hope that some of the listeners today have you know, really engaged in the ideas as well, and maybe we'll take some of this into their lives as they go forward.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. And, and I feel like I gained a lot from the book and it, it just reinforced my orientation in life that I've been moving towards for many years. And it's also a very hopeful book, but it's also very sobering because you don't shy away from the challenges that we all face, even, even when living in the midst of the sweet life.
1: Exactly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been wonderful.
0: Yes, and bye bye. Okay, bye bye. That was William Powers. He's an author and expert on sustainable development on the faculty of NYU, and his latest book is Dispatches from the Sweet Life, One Family, Five Acres, and a Community's Quest to Reinvent the World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Next, we're going to hear from Eve Ensler, known for The Vagina Monologues, City of Joy, and The Day, as well as many other books and performances and work that she does in this world.
3: I want to do the new piece from my book and I want to do it tonight for the girl and everybody here and I want to do it for the girls who survive the girls who can become somebody else but I really want to do it for each and every person here to value the girl in us to value the part that cries to value the part that's emotional to value the part that's vulnerable to understand that's where the future lies This is called I'm an Emotional Creature, and it happened because I met a girl in Watts, L.A. I was asking girls if they liked being a good girl, and all the girls were like, No, I hate it. I can't stand it. It's all bad. My brothers get everything, and this girl just sat up and went, I love being a girl. I'm an emotional creature. (laughs) This is for her. (laughs) I love being a girl. I can feel what you're feeling as you're feeling inside the feeling before. I am an emotional creature. Things do not come to me as intellectual theories or hard-pressed ideas. They pulse through my organs and legs and burn up my ears. Oh, I know when your girlfriend's really pissed off, even though she appears to give you what you want. I know when a storm is coming, I can feel the invisible stirrings in the air. I can tell you he won't call back. It's a vibe I share. I am an emotional creature. I love that I do not take things lightly. Everything is intense to me. The way I walk in the street, the way my mama wakes me up, the way it's unbearable when I lose, the way I hear bad news. I am an emotional creature. I am connected to everything and everyone. I was born like that. Don't you say all negative that it's only, only a teenage thing or it's only because I'm a girl. These feelings make me better. They make me present. They make me ready. They make me strong. I am an emotional creature. There's a particular way of knowing. It's like the older women somehow forgot. I rejoice that it's still in my body. Oh, I know when the coconut's about to fall. I know we have pushed the earth too far. I know my father isn't coming back and that no one's prepared for the fire. I know that lipstick means more than show and boys are super insecure and so-called terrorists are made, not born. I know that one kiss could take away all my decision-making ability. (laughs) And you know what? Sometimes it should. This is not extreme. It's a girl thing. What we would all be if the big door inside us flew open. Don't tell me not to cry, to calm it down, not to be so extreme, to be reasonable. I am an emotional creature. It's how the earth got made, how the wind continues to pollinate. You don't tell the Atlantic Ocean to behave. I am an emotional creature. Why would you want to shut me down or turn me off? I am your remaining memory. I can take you back. Nothing's been diluted. Nothing's leaked out. I love, hear me, I love that I can feel the feelings inside you. Even if they stop my life. Even if they break my heart. Even if they take me off track. They make me responsible. I am an emotional, I am an emotional, inconditional, devotional creature. And I love, hear me, I love, love, love being a girl. Thank you very much. (laughs)
2: And out of the sun's gates come little girls in dresses of fire wearing pigtails of braided smoke which stem from their moon-cratered scalps. The glowing seeds of a nightly garden that will blossom into full moons regardless of the sun. fail the night in the seven names of the wind through the tales of their wind-blown fathers. Who will father these Mothers of Light? And what will become of me, children of the night? Only some will star the sky. Only believers in death will die, and fathers must feather the wings of women, for the unfeathered masses dangle ridiculous carrying crosses to phallus filled tombs. The future sells silence through blood-rivered wounds that ripple with riddles of cows and spoons and birth moons, earths and suns centered at noon. She buries her eggs in the soil and plants her feet in the sky. Soil seeds the circus of carrots and clowns, and minstrels show our desires. And here I stand, court gesturing infinity, fetal fisted for evolution, but open hands birth humility. Now what is the density of an eagleless planet? Must my spine be aligned to sprout wings? I'm slouched in the sling steps and tangled with gang reps by my orbit rainbow Saturn's rings, mystical elliptical presto Polaris, karmic flame future with Saturn and Aries, and now I'm a fish called father with gills type dizzy, blowing blood and liquid lullabies through the spine of time to tranquilize the nervous system's defeat. At the feet of the river the children are gathered or rather buried in the mass gravesite of the night. They are the seeds of light planted in the sky, but the night and skies are meaningless to their unearthly eyes. They are our children playing chess on the sunburnt backs of one-eyed turtles checkmating a lifetime slow crawl to enlightenment, cashing in their crown and glory for magic and contradiction. The children of fiction, born of semen-filled crosses thrust in cavalry's mound with memories of Minyana's millennium. The gravity of the pendulum, the inscription of the grail. The rumors of one famine and diseases and storms of hell all hail the new beginning, behold the winter's end. Bring on the puppets and dragons as the ceremonies begin, for they have come to shatter time and bring back the dead newborn, an army of me, bearing change in the front line and shadows in the field mines, the wilderness and the lights in the city. I have seen them. A tumultuous army of bastards and beggars, madmen and idiots, witches and harlots, dancers and lunatics, singers and sinners, losers and lovers, students and teachers, poets and priests, orbiting the realm of the ordinary through the ordinance of those ordained by the beast. These are our children, love-laden life-lanterns Casting shadows that shepherd the flocks Crying wolf in the moon's full at sirens of love's lull The offspring of Gibraltar's rock Who'll deny him and thrice crows the cock? Will it be you, Peter? Decked in Demir's denial, masquerading in matter overminded, minded under Self is a servant to serpent with wings Three is the beginning of all things triangles to rectangle your wings let vision blur not your deservings pile stone unearth ancient learnings see self as a ghost of your servings if you're serving the father there's no son without mother parent bodies discover water bodies and drown wade me in the water till atlantis is found On the seas of ourself, I'm starfish and unbound. Heard the name of that mound is Stone Mountain. Underwater volcanoes erupt, water fountains of youth, lest this carnal equation cancel out wind and truth. Throw me beyond sometime and drench me waterproof. Let leaves drop forever, rain sunsets on my roof, as I sit on the front porch of my sanity, deciphering hand-bones to Van Gogh, this vanity oiled egos canvas and frame to be reborn, unborn, unburied, unnamed, a reflection through a blood-stained glass window of souls gone yellow around the edges, carbonated dreams and blurred daily lives, but let family bring focus, out of swamps blossom lotus, the muddy water-blue daughters of infinity, gravity we bodhisattvas are serenity as we rise with the tides towards divinity. And she will be raised by wolves just below the masonry-dixon line, where eagles noose the misuse of Osiris's omega papyruses and their claws clenched, so that the vultures of our memories may feast upon the remedies of ancient laws lynched and flop to the treetops of the forethoughts we have forgotten. Yes, silence will be begotten of the wind. The silver eyes of the darkness are her friends. They sometimes plant forever in their dens. On the mountainside, but sometimes now and then in between the rise and set of you and I may blue visions know the depths of liquid skies. And some ask me if she cries in the night and there's a substance of her tears that drench the days with light. You better hope she do. Cause they're riddled with fur coats and painted faces dancing at the peripheries of perfection. They eat Chinese apples that stain their teeth red and they'll cap a cosmos of chaos, and in a moment's notice the children are on the train, selling chocolates with their mothers in the background, fundraising their dreams from the dead and the authors of order are corresponding catharsis and change the leaves of my needs from orange to red. I need fruit and vegetables, for these living things can feed the span of wings. Thus she was born to charter my flight into the blues of night. I am the darkness that precedes the light, a pupil of the sea's reflective sight. Notebook in hand, I footnote land and write. Plot dot 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 and dot my eyes is right and cast my lot amongst the children and the night
0: that was Saul Williams children of the night and before that was Eve Ensler And we are approaching the end of this magical mystery tour. time. Have a wonderful week.